This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics. Their developer toolkits provide world-class controls targeting Windows, Web, iOS, Android, Xamarin Forms, and more. Whether you're an individual developer or part of an enterprise team, they have something for you. Check out the latest today at infragistics.com. Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 54. This week, we talk about the latest developer news from Ignite, and we also talk to Jason Bach about Roslyn, the .NET compiler as a service. This week, we have Jason Bach. He's a practice lead for Magenic. He's a Microsoft MVP. He's an author, and he's a speaker. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. And uh, Carl, how's it going? I'm going pretty good. So I was, uh, one thing I wanted to mention to you, Carl, I got my... uh, I got my Raspberry Pi 2 up and running finally with Windows 10. So I thought you'd think that that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. I'm jealous. Yeah. And that process is actually, it's really, really, really easy. Um, so it requires Windows 10 to um, to get the Pi uh, prepared. At least that's what it says. Um, I'm actually skeptical whether or not that's the case. But uh, basically, it was just a matter of taking the Windows 10 image and flashing that to a, a, the micro SD card. And then I popped it in, hooked it up to a monitor and it runs a UWP app. Excellent. That's all it takes. So I was pretty happy with that. Uh, so let's jump into the news. So this week, all of our news is actually, we're just going to cover Ignite announcements because Ignite was this week. And actually, we're recording this kind of in the middle of Ignite. But uh, I think most of the most of the big announcements have come out. And as usual, I'll have a post on my website. Um, I already have kind of the outline out there. But as the sessions come in, uh, I'm going to link to those so that you can go out there and dive in for more information on anything. So you can go out to whytechie.com and check out any of those. But let's just uh, let's just go through the list here. So let's start with Windows. Uh, so the first thing is Windows Server 2016 Technical Preview 2 is now available. So you can go out and download that. Um, a lot of people are excited for that. And that is, um, you know, as expected, that's that's, you know, it's based on obviously the same code base as Windows 10. But people are really waiting to get their hands on this thing. So I don't know if there's anything else that you heard about this, Carl. Not about that, but I know you would probably really be excited about the next item. Yep. I thought this was really cool in the demo. So Power BI integrated with Cortana. So I think the I think what they ended up asking was um, they asked Cortana for the number of attendees that were signed up for um, Ignite. And then they asked some other information. And it was it was just really cool because uh, if, if you haven't played with Power BI, um, it's super easy to use. Like you can drop different charts and graphs and just, it, it's really easy to, to build like these business dashboards with your data and you can, it actually has like a natural language, uh, text field where you can say, give me sales by salesperson or sales by territory. Um, but now it's, it's integrated with Cortana, at least in the, in the preview that they showed. And you can basically ask Cortana natural language questions and get answers to those in Power BI, which is really awesome. So that was a cool demo, right, Carl? I didn't watch that demo, but oh, you didn't I, see it? I, no, but I, I've seen uh, Power BI used before, and you know it's essentially just typing, so it gives you a way to automate that. And uh, I'm always a fan of using voice uh, commands and stuff like that. So I think that's a really cool example. Yeah, just picturing like the CEO just you know saying, "Hey, Cortana," which of course I'm going to wake up my device there. And uh, they're going to say, uh, you know, show me, show me today's sales. And it's going to come up and, and basically show them that dashboard. So I think that that's really cool. And when I search for a link for this, when I search for Power BI Cortana, like everybody's asking for this. This is this is what everybody wanted. They wanted these things integrated together. So now well, you have it. 
I think it makes really a, a whole lot of sense for uh, the senior leadership teams mm-hmm. just to have a tool like that. So, yep, exactly. Uh, so let's move on to Azure news um, from ignite. So the first one is Azure stack. So uh, Azure pack is the, or Azure stack is the new Azure pack. <laughs> <laughs> so this thing got renamed uh, yet again, uh, but the, it, it's sort of as the product evolves, the, the name is evolving along with it. So this is basically the, the taking the ability to um, of, you know, the full power of Azure and putting it in your own data center. And what was noticeably missing before in Azure pack was storage support. So now that is part of Azure stack. And then also it's got the new portal. It's got the, these arm templates, which are the Azure resource manager templates. So being able to have, you know, a JSON definition of your entire application and being able to deploy that. So now you can take, you can create this, this sort of manifest file that says, this is what my application looks like. It needs a database. It needs storage. It needs compute. And you can, uh, you know, basically with one step say, Hey, run that on-prem. Hey, run that in the cloud and, and basically use that same template in both locations. Uh, and then this also includes service fabric was, which was one of the really cool services that was announced at build. Uh, let's see here. Express route, uh, supports office 365 connectivity. And I thought this one was kind of boring initially, but I guess a lot of people have asked for this and it, when you think about it, 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 it makes sense. Um, so a lot of people are, are switching to office 365, you know, they're putting all their mail in the cloud, um, all of their office 365 services they're putting up there. Um, so they want to have fast connectivity. So express route gives you that uh, fiber connection to that. Uh, IaaS. So, um, IaaS virtual machines, let's see here. Um, Azure DNS public preview, I guess that's not specifically under uh, part of IaaS, but um, now you can use Azure as your DNS provider, which is pretty cool. Um, let's see here. There's some whole bunch of networking announcements. I don't really need to dive into all of those. Those are in the list though. What's the um, C++ storage one? I don't know. Uh, that is the the uh, client library for, for C++ for accessing storage. That is uh, general availability now. Huh. Okay. Yep. Yep. So that's just a, a milestone on that one. Uh, virtual machine uh, volume encryption for Windows and Linux. So you can encrypt your boot and data volumes now. So I think that's a, a newsworthy announcement. Uh, let's see here. Oh, we mentioned that one. Uh, client-side encryption for Azure Storage Preview. So basically the new storage library supports some um, client-side encryption, which a lot of people really, really wanted. Um, you could do it before, but now you can do it through an official library. Uh, there's a new Xamarin storage client library. So, um, uh, you know, if you're using Xamarin, this is a great way to access storage through that library. Um, there's also a new storage blob type called an append blob, which um, is basically what it sounds like. It's a uh, blob that you can uh, just append data to. And um, I haven't, uh, I haven't played around with this, but I assume it's for um, performance reasons. Uh, and then we have, there was a whole bunch of miscellaneous announcements. So office 2016 public preview, either you guys running this yet? No, I'm not. no, but, but there is one feature I am super excited about. And yep. that is the collaboration features. Yeah. Where, uh, uh, I think one of the things that Google Docs has always had and has always had done very well where um, the web apps haven't, uh, Office web apps haven't, is the multi-person collaboration. So multiple mm-hmm. people in the same document at the same time. Um, it's one thing that I think held a lot of people to Google Docs. And I think that uh, if we get the word out about this feature, this is one of the ways that you know, you know Office can continue to show its dominance in the Office productivity uh, suite that they have. Yeah. And I even saw Skype integrated as well. So they were, they were using Skype for business, like within, I think it was like word or something like that. And they were collaborating on a document, which was really powerful. 
So these things, the collaboration keeps getting better and better as time goes on. Um, let's see here. Public preview of advanced threat analytics. Actually, this would probably be under the Azure category. Um, I've actually had people ask for this, but being able to uh, monitor uh, the traffic that's coming into your Azure services and be able to look for, um, you know, sort of outliers, things that are, you know, like if somebody logs in from, uh, you know, Wisconsin and then five seconds later, all of a sudden it shows up that they're logging in from China. Uh, <laughs> that's probably not possible uh, <laughs> unless they've somehow teleported. Uh, but that's very uh, that's, you know, very rare in this day and age. Uh, so the threat analytics is a, is a service that you can use for that type of thing. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, Power BI mobile app for Windows 8 desktop and what does it say? And Surface. Oh, it must be for the um, uh, there must be. Let's see here. Windows 8 desktop. I don't know why it says that. So there's a there's a mobile app, though, for Power BI, which is which is good. Um, I think that covers just about every platform now because uh, there's been one on iOS. Not sure about uh, Android. And now we got Windows covered. Uh, let's see here. Uh, new features in the uh, uh, in Delve. Uh, so there's a there's a dashboard that that shows some things. And I don't know if you saw this demo, but this this was interesting yet scary. So you could basically go in there and it would show you statistics on um, how many meetings you've had, like meeting duration, uh, how many emails you're sending, and then it also it one thing that it showed that I, I thought was really interesting was these these work life balance stats did you guys see these at all no. so so basically it showed like uh you know number of emails sent uh during non-work hours and, <laughs> is, and it, it, is this big brother dashboard or well <laughs> I, so so i was i was i was a little angry to see it because the the question i had so when we're talking work-life balance uh, jason do you work from home um sometimes more often than not so yeah okay so, so all of us, you know, basically work from home and, you know, so whenever it comes to work-life balance, if you're sending emails outside of quote unquote work hours, does that mean you have good work-life balance or bad work-life balance? Well, because you're working from home, you can say, you know what, I'm going to take, you know, maybe a couple hours off during lunch. And then you naturally will do that later at night. And because that's what works best for you with exactly. your, with your work-life balance, you know, so that's but a, I can yeah. see some people looking at it and, and it's sort of scoring your work life balance. It's like, well, you're not very balanced. I see you're sending emails at an odd hour. So I, I think <laughs> there's kind of a disagreement on on what that actually means. So so putting those those numbers up there, the even the raw numbers, I think, is a little dangerous, um, mm -hmm. depending on how they're used. So that one scares me a little bit, <laughs> how that one will just get used out in the real world. Um, and then there was a work map, and I don't recall what that was. Oh, I remember what that was. That was showing uh, basically connections between different teams. That was kind of interesting, showing the different meetings and emails that occur between teams and, and how strong those are. So you could sort of look at that and and um, and figure out like how you're interacting with different teams. I thought that was really interesting. And you could probably use that to make decisions on, you know, how you physically lay out different teams, how you plan different meetings. You know, if there's connections that you want to strengthen or uh, teams that are working very closely together. There, there's probably some insight you could get out of that. So I thought that was kind of neat. So new, new features coming to Delve. Still sounds scary. Yeah, <laughs> it does. That one was far, far less scary though than the work-life balance. Stats, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, let's see. We talked about Skype integration uh, in Office. We also talked about the Office desktop collaboration. Uh, one thing that was exciting was that Sway will be coming to the education and business Office 365 plans. 
So I don't know if I mentioned on the show before, but I got my uh, kid's school set up with the free um, Office 365, the basically the E1 plan. The it's They can get it for free. And uh, it sounds like Sway is going to be coming to, hopefully it comes to that free plan as well. Maybe kind of neat to see, um, you know, get kids into this kind of stuff and, and, and get them creating things. And this is another tool to do that. Okay. Anything else we want to say about Ignite? Should we move on? Okay. Let's talk about Roslyn. Who is this Roslyn person? <laughs> so Jason, what, what is Roslyn exactly? Well, it's not a person. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Good to know. It's, it's a code word. And I think it came from somewhere in the Redmond area. I don't know if it's a town or if it's a, some other type of location. I'm not sure, but that, that's, okay. that's where it came from. And, and it's been around for a long time. The, the code word, right? Yeah. I, I don't know when it exactly started, but I, I do know um, when I do a talk on Roslyn, I have a timeline slide that kind of shows when this started to become uh, public knowledge. And back when build was called PDC, I think it was 2008. That's when Anders first mentioned at the end of one of his talks, this, what I think they call compiler as a service at the time. Mm-hmm. And then that quickly changed to project Roslyn. And that was a code name that they started using. So, so yeah, this has been in the works for years. And when I do a talk, I ask people, have you ever been on a project that hasn't released in over seven to eight years? You, know, you never hit the one oh in that amount of time yet. And most people don't get that luxury, <laughs> you know, yeah. to, to have a project that, that takes that long to do. But then again, most people aren't writing a, a compiler or rewriting it um, while the current compiler is in flight and you have to add new features into that. So, yeah, I think that's what it indicates more than anything is just the the scope and scale of this thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I remember and I didn't really un- fully understand um, you know, exactly what was going on, but I, I was get, receiving the emails talking about the, the Roslyn, the big switch, which was when they, they switched over to Roslyn in visual studio. And it was this massive thing and they had all these reports around, you know, how it was happening. So yeah, it just sounds like it was just a monumental undertaking to, uh, to start using this thing. Yeah. If there's anybody from Microsoft that listens to this, that's been on that team, I think that would make a really interesting book to talk about the whole experience from its inception all the way through until now and mm-hmm. all the struggles and all the things they had to deal with to finally get it to the point that it, that it is. I, I personally would love to read a book like that. So mm-hmm. anyway, I still haven't told you what Rosalind is. Have I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting there. So it's official title now is the compiler API platform which by its name. Oh, that's is, way better. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> what everybody's going to call it too. Um, it's essentially the, the new compiler for .NET, but it's written in the language itself. So now when you're compiling C sharp, the, the EXE is actually been written in C sharp as well. Um, and then all the APIs that go into the compiler, you can use yourself. So you don't, you're not like it was before, where it's all in managed C++. There were no APIs into it, and you couldn't use that for whatever reasons you wanted to. That it's, it's all open and available, and also the code is available as open source as well. That's a whole another topic in and of itself. But, um, but yeah, so, so that's essentially what it is. It's opening up the compiler and letting mm-hmm. people play, and, play with it and use it. So how do you get and how do you use Roslyn? So if you want... <laughs> There's a couple ways to answer that question. If to get it, 
Um, well, if I want to answer in kind of a snarky way, everybody's going to get it because yeah. with 20, yeah, if you just want to use it as a compiler, right? It, right. You, that's just, that is the compiler. Yep. So every .NET developer is going to get it, but if you want to actually use the APIs and that, that's what you're really asking, um, you can go to github.com slash .NET slash Roslyn, I think is the right URL. And you can get all the source code there and, and have at it if you want. If you just want the binaries, they're in NuGet, so you can get them from that location as well. So there's a def- couple different places you can get the, the core API stuff. And then if you want to build what's known as diagnostics and refactorings, there's an um, extension that you can get with those project templates. And so you would just go into Visual Studio, find those extensions, and install it. And then you can create those yourself. So those those are the those are really the, the places where you can go get that stuff. It's really it's it's the typical channels that you would use for other stuff. Okay, and we'll dive into that in probably in a, in a few minutes here. But um, you know, I'm kind of curious. Like, you know, obviously your average developer they're they're just going to automatically get the that new compiler. Uh, but other other than you know sort of inadvertently use it, how was your average developer affected? I mean, is this something that the average developer needs to to know about? Is this something for everybody? Or is this going to be, you know, 5% of developers are going to really care about this thing? I would, I'd like to say that everybody's going to jump into this and do all sorts of cool things with it. And I think maybe over time, more and more people, as they start to see this and, you know, there's a knowledge base built around it. There's already people that are creating, you know, refactorings and other things with the library so that you can see examples. Like, how do I do this? Because, and we might dive into this a little bit later, but trying to work with the APIs is not trivial. I mean, it's, it's basically stuff with compilers and that's, and that's not the easiest thing in the world to, to deal with. Mm. Um, so some people may just get a little intimidated when they hear this is a compiler API and go, well, that's not for me. I just need to get my job done, you know? Um, but I think there is, a there's a potential for a, a lot of power and a lot of, um, how should I say this? Automated code checking. So when I talk about diagnostics, you could write something in this compi- in this uh, compiler API. Actually, if you use the the extensions of the templates that I mentioned before, you can go in and write a, ref- uh, a diagnostic and say, for example, what, if I wanted to make all my classes serializable, I just need to put the serializable attribute in my class. Simple. Mm-hmm. But if you were if somewhere in your program you're always assuming that and that didn't happen and you might get an error, well, you won't know about that until you actually run the code and that happens. So what you want to do is make sure that that's enforced as soon as you can. If you um, if you do it in a code review or, or somewhere else, you may not catch it in time. What you can do is write a refactoring. I'm, not, I'm sorry, not a refactoring, a diagnostic mm-hmm. to look at your code as you're typing it and say, you've written a class, but you don't have the serializable attribute in it, so I'm going to put the little red squiggly under that class so that you see it. And that also, I'll also make it so that when you actually compile your code, it will still fail because that diagnostic is part of the build process. So you'll see the, the, the error in your error list and just so you'll be forced to fix it. So it, it's a good thing because those types of scenarios I see a lot with clients. You know, we want, we want to enforce this. We want to make sure that developers do this. And this mm-hmm. gives them the ability to write these things so that they can be reused and catch the problems much quicker. So strong typing already gives us 
you know, some, some basic functionality. There's some, some basic static type checking. Mm-hmm. And you're saying we can, we can take that a couple steps further past that as, as we need for our project. Yeah. Let me give you a real world example. Um, mm-hmm. When I was doing some WCF about six or seven years ago, we made one of our operations one way. And so we marked the method with operation contract. We said, is one way is true. But I inadvertently made the method return something. So it wasn't a void method. Okay. That all compiled. was working just fine. <laughs> I actually was running my unit tests. I was just creating an instance of the class and testing yep. the methods. And that worked all just, you know, just fine, too. You'll find well, out at runtime. It fails miserably. So, and, and I, you know, that that's time wasted at that point. If I, if I would have caught that as soon as I typed it and visual studio, or or if I'm just going right to the compiler telling me, Hey, you made a mistake. You have a method that's returning something, but it's an operation contract method. That's one way. So you should be marking the method as void. If I knew that much quicker, that's time saved. And so I think that's where you go a step beyond, even if you're in a statically typed language like C-sharp, you're going to go even a step beyond that or in different areas where you're saying, I just want to enforce things. Uh, another one is I don't want to, I don't want developers ever to use daytime now because I don't want to get in the scenario of I've got local daytimes in my database. And you can't test it. You, well, you can't, you can't easily test it. If I start, branching out my system where I'm dealing with other time zones. Yeah. Distributed now, system. Yeah. Now it gets to be, up. yeah, it gets to be a huge mess. Whereas if I just used UTC now, um, then I have a much easier, um, I, I have a much easier approach with my dates and I can just localize them or put them in the time zone for the user. So you can write a diagnostic that says if anybody, if any developer is typing date now flag it, and you can also give them a code fix as well to say, just change it automatically to UTC now. Wow. That is, that's really cool. That's, that's very handy right there. And, and a lot of these examples that I'm, I'm talking about, if you go to my GitHub page, um, I don't want to plug stuff right now, but it's relevant to the conversation. No, uh, no, go ahead. What uh, is it? It's github.com slash Jason Bach. I've got a fair amount of examples out there on, on some of these things that I've talked about. So you can see how all this works. And it's, it's interesting to know when I've, put together some of these diagnostics, you actually don't end up writing a lot of code. You mm-hmm. think I'm doing a compiler. I'm doing stuff with a compiler. This is going to be a lot of code. It's going to be really hard to figure out. It really isn't. It, um, it's, it's not as hard or it's, it's not as time consuming as one may think. So. So I have a question about that diagnostic. So you said some of the things that we can do is we can fail the build and we can put red squigglies on things. But can we interact back? Can we provide suggestions on how to correct that code and maybe even automatically do that? Yeah. Or yep. Um, when I, when I was talking about the daytime now thing, I briefly mentioned the code fix. So so there's two parts to a diagnostic. One is yelling at the developer and telling them that they did something wrong. But that's that's helpful, but not helpful enough. Um, when I mentioned the thing about WCF, one of the things I always liked about WCF is that if you failed something. And you had, I can't remember what the switch was, but you could turn something on in your configuration file to say, tell me lots of error information, essentially. And then it would give you this big detailed description as to what you did wrong and potentially how you could fix it, except you had to do it manually. You still had to go in and say, oh, I've got to fix this myself. So the diagnostic part has the you know has that part of being a diagnostic, telling you what you did wrong, but then you can also 
hook in a bunch of code fixes. So you can say like an example for date for, well, I'll do the WCF one going back to that one. If, if I had that scenario that I mentioned before, I can make a code fix where I could say, just make the is one way value false. And so I pick that and it would just automatically change my text to being false. I still have to code that code fix. I still got to do it myself. But then once I've got that in the place, then the developer can just see, oh, I've got a mistake. See if there are any fixes available. And if there are, have it automatically do that for me. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I like this. This is cool. And his code is, for both examples that he had, his code is right out in GitHub. So pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just say that I'm looking forward to, you know, we have C Sharp 6 coming out soon and I'm looking forward to C Sharp 7 and I see some language feature that I just can't wait for. Can I add that using Roslyn, those new language features and kind of how hard would that be to do something like that? You can. There's This one's a bigger caveat, though, in the sense that if, if you wanted to add a language feature, um, for example, I'll just, I'll just throw this one out because I use it as kind of a pie-in-the-sky one. Let's say I could add the disposable keyword to a class. And if I do that, what that will essentially do is generate all the cruft, all the stuff that I need to do and have it make sure it's implementing on disposable, it's doing the dispose pattern correctly. It's making sure that if I ever access any member on the object, that it's going to throw object dispose exception after I've called dispose. Most people don't do that part and you're supposed to. Um, just all that kind of complex busy work, have that just done for me. That I think would be kind of a cool idea. And there's lots of other things you could think of too to, um, to potentially just add a little keyword here and make it appear in the language and work. Uh, the problem is, is there's a master version of C sharp and that's the one that we, that everybody's always going to be using. And that's the one that's going to be coming from Microsoft. You know, we, you know, people can play with this. So if you wanted to take the source code and do it locally on your box, I, I've seen somebody take the C sharp compiler code and essentially treat the sealed keyword as trivia or as just white space. So what ends up happening is <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So you can, you can inherit from sealed classes. It looks like you're doing that, even though it's you're not. So you could do that. You could add all your own stuff and, and play with it locally, but the chances are that you would be able to submit that as a pull request and get it accepted um, are somewhere close to zero. <laughs> There's, you know, whatever. Okay. See, th- yeah. Cause this is really what I was wondering because I I've seen like right after uh, Roslyn came out, I think in 2015 or in, was in visual studio 2015. I saw so many blog posts of people coming up with new language features. They're like, yeah, check this out. And it was like, okay, well that's great. But like, you know, is that something that I can actually use? And it doesn't sound like there's like a package system for compiler, you know, compiler features, right? Not really. Not, not, out of the, there's no way to really go in with the compiler, you know, with the stuff that you get from Visual Studio and just say, I want to just extend the language directly through the API and do things that way. You really have to get the source code and play around with it to, to do your nefarious deeds, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, if you really come, if you come up with a feature that is really interesting 
and would be beneficial to a lot of C-sharp developers. Like the one I mentioned about the, the seal keyword, probably not very uh, <laughs> beneficial. I don't know. I don't know. There's probably a lot of people that want that. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm sure we've all run into that situation. Where we're like, why is it sealed? Yeah. What, what secrets do you hold? Yeah. You know, it's, it's frustrating, especially on like some real simple classes in there. So you, you could do that, but it would really be confusing <laughs> um, to say the least. So, so you, my middle name. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you could so you could do all this stuff and do it locally, but getting it into the language itself, uh, the, basically the mainline version of the language, that's not going to happen. But if you have some idea and you wanted to actually implement it, by all means, you could make a pull request for it, um, and it will go. It will be examined and it will be determined. Yeah, we want to do this. Um, they will. They have already taken pull requests, not necessarily on large language features, but if there's bugs, if there's other little things that they've, that you go to their site and I think they call like the up for grabs tag. Right, right, right. And people can just make those yeah, changes. I like, I like when it. projects do that. Cause they're like, Hey, this is stuff that, you know, we want to do. We just haven't gotten to it. If you want to do it, have at it. Yeah. This, this kind of leads to a whole discussion about how the community is going to change. I think with people that have done .NET development over the years, uh, but mm-hmm. they have accepted pull requests. And you, I don't know if you may have seen people that have on their Twitter feeds, they'll hold up a, a cup and it says cup of tea. So it's cup and then the generic tea. Oh yeah, yeah, and then they'll have on the back. Um, I think it's the the code that is associated with that pull request, and they etch it into the cup. So, so that's basically your pull request, and they'll know they send you a cup when you do that. Oh so, wow, that's yeah. cool. So that's kind of cool. Well, um, that's that's pretty motivational. I want I want the cup. Yeah, I don't know how scalable that's going to be. But, <laughs> <laughs> so, but I've seen people have that. And I'm a little jealous. I need to I need to find something and and get a pull request in so I can get that cup too. Yeah. So, so obviously I can, I can do that. That's probably not going to happen, but if I just wanted to, you know, share it with Carl, he's like, Oh man, that's awesome. I, I hate sealed classes too. Um, would I, would I, I mean, would I literally have to like, I would end up forking the, the main repo and then I'd end up, um, you know, he would end up cloning that and he would have to like rebuild the compiler then. Yeah. That's, that's essentially what you have to do. So you have to start managing all that yourself. So yeah. a lot of that is probably just going to be experimental stuff. You know, the, yeah. the, the fact that you can even do this though, you know, if, if somebody would have said 15 years ago, would Microsoft have their compiler APIs, have all their source code out in the open where people could do this, you could have taken that bet and won because it's never, it would have never happened. And the right. fact that that's available right now for people that really want to do that is, is quite a turn of events. So, uh, it, it, so if you really wanted to have in a company your own C sharp version, you could do it. But caveat emptor, it's probably not the the easiest thing to manage either. Carl, I'm sorry to interrupt this, but I got to talk about something that's really cool. Uh, so what I wanna, is it? I want to talk about Infragistics. So they have controls for pretty much every platform. So they have, for example, for desktop applications, they cover controls for Windows Forms, WPF, Windows 8, uh, lots of mobile controls. So Windows Phone, iOS, Android, and, and also Xamarin, which is really cool. So I was working on uh, a Xamarin project recently, and uh, they have controls that will actually work within Xamarin Forms, and then they automatically work across all of the platforms. And then they also cover web, um, ASP.NET MVC, jQuery, you name it, they got it. Yeah, I'm working on a WPF app right now, and 
I wanted to check out some of their controls. They got an app that you can download where it has examples of everything that you need. So if you want like a color picker or something, you can go on there, you can play with it. You can toggle all the different options. They even show like all the different XAML and code behind that is needed to interact with it. It's it's a nice way to get used to uh, something before you just go ahead, jump in and, and pay for it. And then they also have this amazing prototyping pool out there, tool out there called Indigo Studio. So this is really cool. I haven't seen this before, but you go out there and you can actually rapidly build an app with this application. So you can build a, a demo. So if you have an idea, you can actually prototype this and then it's usable. You can actually navigate through all the screens um, and you could show this to your stakeholders and get funding for your project. It's really cool. And then you can actually demo this right out in your browser. So there's some samples out there. If you go out and check out their Indigo Studio and scroll down to the sample section, uh, you can actually view some of these samples right in your browser, which is really cool. So you got to go check those out. And not only that, but they have community uh, made uh, samples as well. So things that other people have just donated out for you to check out. Very cool. And then there's also a lot of great enterprise solutions such as Report Plus for making dashboards and then also Share Plus, which is a great way to work with SharePoint in a, in a mobile application. So check it all out at infragistics.com. And there are free trials, so you have nothing to lose. And like you said, you can download these applications and check all this stuff out ahead of time. So we want to thank them for their support of the MS Dev Show. And then, so what else have you done with uh, Roslyn? So I'm looking at your GitHub page and you have like um, uh, de-regionizer, I see, <laughs> which is which is awesome. Um, Auto-arrange, things like that. Actually, de-regionizer. So it says, removes regions from your code in solutions. So does that thing... Um, Basically, I, I hate it when people use regions when there's like 10 lines of code and they have like four regions. I think yeah. that should be I think that should be illegal. <laughs> is that what this thing does? So so what it does is it um, and th this is interesting you bring it up because w whether you love or hate regions, I, I tell people when I show this and demo it that if you love regions, you're going to hate me. And if you hate regions, you're going to love me <laughs> because this goes through an entire solution, all the projects, all the files, finds all the region and end region directives and kills them. And gets rid of them. Um, and th this shows in the Roslyn APIs that they, they have what's called workspace APIs. So you can do this traversal of solutions and projects and do those types of things. It looks easy, too. I mean, it's literally like for each project ID and project IDs yeah. uh, and you get project for each document in project document IDs. Uh, I mean, you're just literally with with some real, you know, with a real nice object model being able to iterate through projects and documents. This is this is pretty cool. Yeah, the the way I did it at the time is that there's no with the with the um, diagnostics and the refactorings. There's a nice template version, and, and Microsoft is, has all this set up so it can get these up and running and and into other you know projects and stuff like that, so you can use those. With this thing, there's no easy way to say when I build my solution run this thing in all the projects. So what I did is I created a console app. And if you actually bring this in and look at the code, you'll see for one of my projects on a pre-build step, it's actually just shelling out to that console app and saying, run it on this current project. Mm -hmm. But you could also create a custom MS build task and, and just put this in all the project files and just say, run this as well on all pre-build steps if you wanted to. So, so there are other ways to easily hook this into you know, like a solution or or, um, or a project and make it work. So so yeah, that that that's one that usually gets a bunch of chuckles um, or howls of derision, depending on yeah. you. <laughs> so the, the, any other yeah, any other projects you wanted to mention? Um, some I've already done and uh, that I've talked about. One is that I've been working a lot on is called Rocks, 
And this one is using Rosalind to create a mocking library. Mm-hmm. So people that have used MOQ or in substitute, um, it's essentially basically the same idea, except I don't have to go through system reflection emit essentially to generate all these mocks at, at runtime. Um, so this is really more of an experiment than it is anything. I mean, I, I like both those libraries and I'm, I'm not trying to say they're bad because they're not. I really, I use them all the time, mm-hmm. but I, this is just, could I do this with the Roslyn APIs and, and have it work well? And and one thing that's been really in- interesting and fun is, well, fun for me <laughs> um, <laughs> is I've been able to, you know, generate all these mocks and do it just with generating C sharp code as strings. I was going to say, so you're actually generating like a real mock. It's not just like an in-memory object. It's like the, a mock class. Yeah, which ends up just being an object at runtime. So I just mm-hmm. compile that and create an instance of it. And then, you know, people set up expectations or whatever on the mock. Then when you actually use that in your test, it will track those and, and do all that. Plus, it's all in C Sharp. So the, the kicker is, is if I really want to, I don't expect people that would use this library to do it, but it's made my debugging time much quicker because I can F11 into my mock and it just that's cool because I have all the debugging symbols and everything generated. It just goes right into the generated C sharp code at that line. And then I can step through the mock code that I just generated. That is, that's actually really cool because one of the biggest issues with using a a mocking framework is you, you tell it what you want and you, you screw up telling it what you want, but then you can't figure out like what it thinks it thought you wanted. Yeah, exactly. And this, <laughs> and, and maybe you were wrong or maybe the library has a bug. So you could do that with, with this, um, with this library and step through it and say, Oh, that's actually what it's doing. And that's why it's failing because either I made a mistake or there's something that it's not catching. Um, so, so it, it, it's a, it's been a front project to do because it's, it's fairly technical and I like that stuff. Um, but it's also just been, another illustration of just how much you can use this compiler API stuff to do all sorts of things. You know, and I I think um, it's going to be very interesting in the next couple of years to see people do this for all other sorts of of projects as well. Mm -hmm. As we were talking about like looking inside of our code, is there, is there any tools that we can use to visualize the code kind of like how Rosalind sees it so we can interact with it a little bit more easily? Very good leading question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the answer is no, we're going to be mad. (laughs) Yeah. If the answer was no, I I don't think it would have any, honestly, I don't think it'd have any popularity. And it didn't dawn on me when I first saw just how important this one tool is. It's called the syntax visualizer. So it's an extension that you can get. So you just, again, you just go into uh, Visual Studio, you go to tools and extensions and you look for this thing called the, I think it's still called the Roslyn syntax visualizer. Um, but if you get this and you're typing in code in Visual Studio, you can then open that window up. And then what it gives you is a syntax tree of your code in that code window. And this is so useful because if you start thinking of things like, again, the WCF example, I have an attribute that has a value that's got to be, that's currently true. And then I got to look at the method and look at its return. The trees are very, are very verbose. I mean, it, like I mentioned before, it also has this concept of trivia. It knows where your line feed carriage returns are. It knows, knows how much space is here. It knows all that stuff. So going, going through those things can be 
extremely frustrating, you know, because you just can't keep all that knowledge in your head. But I can just go into Visual Studio, just type up that example, bring up the syntax visualizer and see, oh, an attribute is represented in a Roslyn syntax tree as this thing is. And so then it becomes a lot simpler to go, okay, now I'd have to go through the the syntax tree as I would get it in my diagnostic, but I know what I'm targeting now. I know what I'm looking for. So that tool is indispensable. If, if people want to do things either through factorings or diagnostics or just playing around with the compiler APIs, that's all. That's a tool I don't think you can do without. You absolutely must use that thing. It's so helpful. Yeah, and I've seen you do a, a speech on Roslyn and show the syntax tree visualizer. And it is, I, I can't imagine not having that if you're going to work with this at all. Yeah. It'd be a lot of like restarting your code and examining the object model. And it's pretty, yeah, like you said, it's very verbose. So that'd be painful. Yeah, it's, it is, it would be extremely difficult to be productive in this API without it. But with it, it, it makes it makes things much, much easier. Um, and just as a side note, um, even though this isn't necessarily related to what you asked, but I did want to bring this up because uh, sometimes people, as they should, they should be doing a bunch of testing on their code, writing unit tests. Um, so one thing that is so cool about all this stuff is that you can say, hey, I want to write a piece of code that will check either that my diagnostic finds it or it doesn't. What you can do is you can just create a C-sharp file in your test project, but don't mark it for compilation. Just say it's a file. You'll still get all the coloring and highlighting and IntelliSense. It just won't compile it into your test project. The thing that's nice about it, though, is that you could then look and see, oh, this part in my code, which my diagnostic should target, it's at a text span and a position in line at a certain point. And then you can use that to quickly find that position in what you can just load that file then as a string, compile that, and then run it through the diagnostic. But by knowing where things are exactly in your code can make it much easier to write the test. So again, you're using the compiler APIs in your tests to create a tree that then you can run the analyzer on. So Very cool. Yeah, that makes sense. So what does Roslyn mean for uh, things like the Mono Project and Xamarin? That is a good question um, because... I'm not entirely sure um, when they announced that they were actually going to have. So there's so it's not like this is confusing. Um, <laughs> they, now, <laughs> they now have .NET Core and they still also have .NET Framework. So .NET Core is completely open source now, but that's a subset of what's in the .NET Framework. Mm-hmm. They've, they've released the code so that you can look at it from an open source perspective. Um, they're not taking any contrib- contributions on it yet. And it's not, you can't take it and compile that and run it on different platforms yet. It's, I think they still have some OS specific things in it. So they just, they, they can't do that yet. But they've said their long term goal is to eventually have that all open source. Um, but since now you can actually, I, I believe this is the case, you can take a look at the framework code from an open source perspective that definitely helps the mono team. Because before they couldn't do that, you know, they've even mm-hmm. said they they were fearful of doing anything with the .NET framework because if they ever saw a look at the real code, there's well, are they open source now? Or are they not? And mm-hmm. yeah, and, and they it, is it copying it or you know was right. it original? Yep. So now it's cool because they can provide insight into uh, some things in the framework that maybe they go, hey, we did it this way, and it's probably a little bit better than what you did, and vice versa. 
Mm-hmm. So will there ever be a convergence at some point where you really don't need the mono framework because there really is only there is one true.NET framework that can be run on multiple platforms? Probably somewhere down the line. I think in the in the near term, you, you're still going to need mono if you want to target Linux. If you want to run the full.NET framework, you're still going to need mono. So, so that's not that's not going away. But there's there's going to be a lot more collaboration between Xamarin and Microsoft in in this area for the framework. Mm-hmm. And then what about Xamarin itself? You know, so the you know running it on iOS, Android, that whole thing. Because I've I've heard. I think I think it was you, Carl, who told me this that they're you know they've been taking code out of um, Xamarin out of out of Mono, or they've basically been replacing the Mono implementations with the .NET Framework implementations. Yeah, they they have been doing that. I, I have to admit, I've not followed that as closely as other mm-hmm. things. Um, so, to what extent, I'm not sure. But yeah. given that, again, both those both those areas are open source now. Whereas it was really just one before there's, there's definitely gonna be a lot more collaboration in the future on that. Okay. So speaking of the future, is there, is there anything else that this is really going to help and enable in the future? You know, we talked about some short term things, but I, I don't know if there's more like big picture stuff that, that you're aware of, or, or if it's, we gotta, we, if we kind of have to wait and see. I'd say for the future. And this is a point I'm starting to try to make to people is, if you've been working in the Microsoft stack for a long time, mm-hmm. you're probably used to either one way back, you'd always buy stuff from these component vendors and use that in your projects. And and then as time went on, you probably still would do that. Um, NuGet's been a fairly recent endeavor, but even if you put your components and assemblies in NuGet, doesn't necessarily mean that's open source. You're just putting the binaries essentially out there. Yeah, it's just a distribution method. Right. So So the fact that all of this now is open source from Microsoft. I think a big question that's going to come into people's minds is, you know, some, from some enterprises, this may be a big deal. You know, that some some places, for whatever reasons, don't necessarily like open source. Well, now that this is, does that matter to them? Does it not? That's um, a good point. If develop, yeah, because I because I do work with organizations that are sort of anti open source. Yeah, and and you're right. I think now they're going to be like, oh well, we can't be anti open source if if the the very the most important things we depend on are open source. You know, I think they they need to reevaluate that. That's just kind of that's just a, an artifact from a from a different era. And I think that's that's true. And then I think there's another side to it, which is. Uh, especially me being a consultant, or even if you're working in-house full-time for an employee, is if I'm using these components and I'm using them for, quote, you know, you're not filming me, but I'm doing the air quotes, quote, unquote, free. <laughs> um, but you run into a problem or an issue, you can post something on, you know, either Microsoft stuff or anybody that's doing an open source library and post a bug and say, hey, I found this, you know, just just so you know. But nobody's under any obligation to fix it as fast as you want it to be fixed. Mm-hmm. So if you're really being part of this free community, you should give back, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you should consider, well, if, if I want to make this a better library, then I need to probably invest some of my time into seeing, could I actually fix this or could I, could I contribute to this in any sort of way so that everybody gets the benefit? And that's, I think that's a mindset that is going to be interesting to see how that changes over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and with 2015 and beyond, I think that's just going to really start to 
come into play. You know, I don't expect millions of .NET developers to necessarily be submitting pull requests to fix things in the compiler. Maybe, I, I, but I'm kind of doubting that's going to happen. Well, I think so. I think that that group of developers though should be fixing something, right? So um, I've had there there are so many opportunities, and I don't even I'm not a full time developer, but I still run into at least on a weekly basis something that I can fix, even if it's something I'm not an expert in, and it usually comes down to things like documentation. You know, it's funny that you just mentioned that because um, not our last Twin Cities Code Camp, but the one before it, we had Charles Nutter who is basically the guy for JRuby doing a talk. And what he did a talk on was essentially open source and how you can become a part of it. And one of the things he said to people is if you want to get into doing open source projects, start looking at documentation. Usually that's probably the last thing that people really care about. Yeah. Look for typos or, or even, you know, a lot of documentation just isn't very full feature because the people that are experts in it, like I'm sure you've done this where you, you know, you're the expert, you wrote something yeah. and then you have to write the documentation or even tell somebody else how to do it. And it's just impossible to be full featured, you know, like an installation process or something like that. So there's been a couple projects where I've gone through and I had to, I had to, you know, suffer through that whole process. And as I went along, I just made my own notes. Well, don't just keep those to yourself, like help the next person that that's going to go through and do that. Right. And I even had a, I had a conversation recently with, um, and we're getting a little bit off topic on the whole open source thing, but I had, uh, I had a conversation with a, a company recently and I said that, that you need to start integrating this open source thinking into your DNA. And I said, you know, they have extremely, it's, you know, very proprietary software and, and it, and it should be, and, and that's fine. But I said, listen, start with your documentation. You can download your documentation on the website. Right. And they're like, yeah, I'm like, why don't you let your users fix that? Yeah. You know, I, it's, it's, I guarantee it's not perfect. Do it in Markdown, put it in GitHub and accept pull requests on it. If they don't send any pull requests, then okay. But, but you, you're probably going to have some passionate people that are, that are going to go in there and fix that. Mm-hmm. And that really, that will start to show the value in your organization of, of having that stuff out there and then just easy manageability. And, you know, always ask yourself, is this, should this thing be secret? And I think Microsoft is with, with all these things and Roslyn and all these other open source projects is asking that too, is like, is there, is there something to be gained by not making this open source? It used to be like, why should we open source this? But the question I think is flipped. Yeah. And they've even said that, that now it's, Mm -hmm. you need a good reason to not do it. And it's not to say that they will open source everything. You know, there are reasons why you may not want to open source stuff, but I think you make a really good point of, um, when you say documentation of just having that stuff out there, you know, and letting people contribute to that. And if you and again, if you want to get into a project, you don't necessarily have to go into the guts and change how the compiler works or fix bugs. You know, even if you see a typo, at least that gets you into familiarity with the project, how the code works, you know, getting into GitHub, forking it, submitting a pull request, all that stuff, you know, over something that. You know, if I'm just fixing an XML comment here and there, that's not that big of a deal, but you're contributing and that's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. So. so as you know, I'll, we've talked a lot about how this would help us individually or at work, but what, what about Roslyn? Um, could tools like ReSharper and CodeRush, are there any new features that are enabled by code, uh, Roslyn or is there anything that they could really take advantage of? <laughs> I chuckle because I think if my memory serves me correctly, when when Microsoft really started pushing this whole compiler API stuff and, and got the bits out and for people to play with it, that's the question that was on a lot of people's minds is, what does this do to CodeRush and ReSharper? Um, does, does this get rid of them? Uh, 
I don't think so. At least not in the short term. I don't think it does because it's, it, there's a lot of things that they're doing to have to do a lot of deep analysis on your code. It could potentially make their jobs easier in the sense of they don't have to write those compilers themselves. I mean, up until now, they've always had to write their own parsers to take a look at your code and, and figure out, is it doing the right thing? And if it's not, provide a refactoring or something like that. Um, they don't need to do that anymore. And in fact, that's, that's probably a really good thing because now there's one source of truth. Um, I, I've sat in some talks with Microsoft and they said, you know, in some cases, are you specifying a less than sign or are you specifying the start of a generic? And in some cases, it can be really hard to figure out what the intent of a developer is trying to do in code. Yeah, that's a good point. So they don't have to try to do the same thing that Microsoft's doing. It's all one code base. But I think like Sharper has said, they've put a lot of you know investment into creating their tooling and all the code underneath it. And for them just to just simply junk that and move towards the compiler API, that may not be cost effective for them. I think CodeRush has said that they definitely are going to start using that. So it's interesting. That's to interesting. See, it yeah. is interesting to see t- these vendors have kind of two different approaches to it. Um, I think somewhere down the line, it would just make sense for vendors to to use that one single source of truth. Um, but you know, I when that happens, I'm not sure. Um, it it can. The thing with this is it really enables developers that they don't have to, if they want to write a refactoring, they don't necessarily have to wait for their favorite vendor to write this for them. They could do it themselves. And it's very empowering. Yeah. And just plug it into visual studio. And you know, now we get the light bulb. That's the new thing in the 2015 in 2015, you get the light bulb. If you ever get a refactoring or or a diagnostic, so you can do the control period and then see what's available um, at that line of code that you're on. And you can have your refactoring plug into there to do stuff for you. In fact, um, a client that I've been going to, he was asking, you know, he wanted to do a bunch of co-generation stuff for things that are very repeatable and I do it over and over and over again. And I said, well, yeah, you could use regular expressions and do that in a separate tool and put your code there, copy, paste it, bring it back into Visual Studio. I said, but if you're in 2015, you're going to easily have this ability to say, I'm on a method and I want to just be able to right click and say, generate my my data, my DTO mapping. And boom, it will just be all put in there in code for you. Awesome. So, you know, you that may be somewhat specific to your business and what you're doing, but you can have that easily integrated into Visual Studio and mm-hmm. and have kind of a one and done experience. That's that's really cool. That's an, I think that's another uh, good scenario. But uh, speaking of Code Rush and Resharper, um, you know, I was just thinking, had Roslyn been available from day one, I'm sure both of them would have used it. Yeah. Uh, and and the the point that Resharper, one of the points that I know Resharper made was that they need to support old versions. And Roslyn doesn't, I mean, it doesn't go back, right? It's only right. it's only like 2015 and above and and you know, a certain .NET version and above. Yeah. That, um, so that was that was one of their big arguments. That's a that's a really good point to make too, is this is only for 2015 and beyond. So if somebody's looking at this and saying, hey, can I use this for C sharp four or three or whatever? No. It will. It obviously has all those constructs in the language that doesn't go away. But you can't just use re, these things within like previous versions of Visual Studio. So if you're still using right. 2013, 2012, 2010, or whatever, um, you can't use this stuff. So, mm-hmm. so that is a good point to make. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Any anything else that you wanted to mention on Roslyn? 
Did we cover everything? So we talked about uh, diagnostics. We talked about actually modifying the compiler. Uh, we sort of glazed over uh, some of the refactorings, but I, I think I think people get that that you can actually you know modify the code uh, using that that syntax that that Roslyn gives you. Mm-hmm. Um, was there anything else that we missed? I I think I just would want to end it by saying that this is. I, I think a really exciting thing for .NET developers to be aware of, even if you're not necessarily going to be using it on a day-to-day basis, to at least know it's there. And who knows? You may just see somebody you know do a demo on this or write an article on it and read it and go, you know, there's scenarios that I run into that I'd like to maybe use the stuff that's in 2015 and and potentially make my life easier. You know, it's it is compiler stuff. It's not easy, but uh, but it's also on the flip side not that hard either. They made it pretty easy, all things considered, to get into it and use it. And in terms of future stuff, just the fact that they have the compiler open source is going to allow features to be um, not necessarily that they're going to add more features, but it will allow them to, to iterate on them faster, get feedback on it faster. Um, it was interesting in C Sharp 6 to see what features were there and got dropped, uh, how they changed, like string interpolation, its syntax changed a lot before they finally settled on the dollar sign bef- um, before the string starts, uh, which I think was the right thing to do. But um, it, it gives Microsoft and other people the power to say, I want to play with the language feature, and it, and it's much easier to do than it has been before. So um, this opens up a lot more doors than what has been there in the past. Okay. I got one more surprise question for you. So I I was thinking through, um, I'm just thinking through my wish list. So is there a way to, to have it look at the code, uh, basically modify it in sort of a temporary state and then compile that code? So if I want to, let's say I want to have like an observable property uh-huh. and .NET, you know, doesn't have like a native concept of, uh, of having something that's really observable. So can you, can you do something where it looks at a property and maybe it's, it has like a certain attribute and I actually totally change that code, but I don't want it to change in the, in the source file. I just want to like generate a second copy of it and then compile, you know, compile that using some extensions. Is that, is that possible or am I crazy? I'm showing them a book that I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you wrote a whole book on this. <laughs> yeah. So this was a good, I, cause I just, I honestly just thought of this. Okay. It's a, it's a plug on the metaprogramming book. Um, okay. You're talking about something that oh. is definitely on their future wish list. If, and, okay. and this quickly, this is a really good point too, that all of their uh, discussion and, and analysis on future versions of C sharp is all on their GitHub page. And so if you want to be part of that, if you want to even just put ideas out there and be part of that discussion, you can be. And one of the things that they've talked about over and over again is metaprogramming. This idea that I could put an attribute on my code. I don't want it to necessarily change the code that I've written, but I want it to change my code in terms of what gets actually compiled. You can do that, not necessarily right now. Um, you can just do that in the sense of that's possible. Now, one of the big problems, though, is if I do that and then I debug it, well, what's actually running and what I see in the debugger and breakpoints won't necessarily match up. And so it becomes a, it becomes an interesting problem in terms of how do I make this a smooth ex- experience for everybody to understand that if I put like a not null attribute on an argument, that's automatically going to generate that code to check it for null. And if it's null, it will throw an argument null exception for me. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't see that in my code. 
So right. how do I make that, you know, a, a good experience so that I know, oh, that's why I'm seeing this exception, even though I don't see it in the code. So um, that's that's a, one idea that I know they've talked about a lot. And it needs to just come down on a good sweet spot of how to how to make this work effectively for a lot of people so that, you know, it works well and it's not confusing either. Yeah. I'm looking at uh, post sharp. That's yeah. I was trying to trying to think of what the, the tool was. I tried this a while back and I think you're right. What, what was uh, confusing about this was you, well, there was no good way to like distribute it, right? You can't just pull down the code and have it magically work. You also had to install post sharp and, and configure it. So, yeah, I think with post sharp too, I, th- I know, I believe um, they are embracing Rosalind too and making that experience better in terms of their sense, yeah. in terms of how they do AOP. So um it, it's definitely a, a topic for future work. It just it, it's not an easy one to implement. Right. So. Okay, cool. Uh let's see. Let's move on to the app of the week. What do you got, Carl? Uh this week I have the app of the week is uh Crossy Road. Mm-hmm. And what's cool about this is it's been on a little bit on phone, but it's recently been made a universal app. So if you get some achievements or whatever in one version, they just flow through to the other. Um, I'm a big fan of games that I can play mindlessly for about 30 seconds if I have to. Um, <laughs> and, and this one definitely fits that bill. Um, so if you're into a game like that, just something that you can clear your head with for a little bit, I recommend Crossy Road for Windows 8.1 and Windows Phone. Wow, six, over 6,000 reviews and, and five like full stars. That's awesome. My kids I know have played this. Is this like Is this like Frogger? Yeah, this is like a combination of Frogger and Temple Run. So this has okay. been on iOS and Android for a bit. It's been on Windows Phone for a few months and now on uh, Big Windows. What's it okay. called? I'm going to download it as we're talking. Yeah, Crossy Road. I think I'm going to do the same thing. <laughs> Crossy yeah. Road. Oh, there trying it is. To, okay. Trying to yes. relive my Frogger days. Yes, and in addition, it does have that 8-bit feel to it. So that always helps. Oh, it's got, okay. it's got a 3D 8-bit feel, which is which is pretty awesome. Mm. You know, yeah, you know... It, you know what's great about this eight bit programming is it's got to be so much easier, right? Because you don't, you know, you don't. It's it's graph. It's far less graphically intense. Like look at Minecraft, right? Yep. You know, you get it's it's pretty easy to get like super good performance. Uh, okay, and then we have this game that we play. Let me get it out here. I'm unprepared. Uh, but what I need you to do, I need you to pick a number between one and four. You want me to do it, or you want? Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, one. One. Okay. <laughs> What? Oh, this is terrible. This is a kid's game, okay? And I'm not making up these questions. I can show you the card. This is ages <laughs> seven plus. <laughs> Would you rather eat a cooked beaver tail or a cooked cow udder? <laughs> Do I'm I so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to show you the card on the video here. Just just so you can see that it's not like I'm making this stuff up. I should have picked two. The card um. it. <laughs> beaver tail or cow oh, udder? Oh, <laughs> man. Um... Okay, I've this got, decision will will live with you for the rest of your life. So I'm going to leave it to the guitar pick. I have that here, so it's either okay. the symbol or go. not. So let's see. Flipped it, so it's the the second one, the cow udder, I guess. So. Okay, okay, you're eating a cooked cow udder. Yeah, I guess it has protein. So <laughs> yeah. okay, Carl, what are you picking? I'll one, pick number two. Then. Number two. Okay. <laughs> While at the top of Mount Everest, would you rather lose your hat or your goggles? Or, or would you rather eat a cooked cow udder? I'll throw that as a, as a third option. I like option. your question better. That's so much easier. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Less disgusting, too. Yeah I, know. yeah, I could probably improvise something else for a hat, so I would rather 
lose that. Point. I I can imagine that if you didn't have goggles up there, that would be pretty rough. But you do have glasses too, though. Yeah, it's not the same. Yeah, right? I know. I know your eyeballs are gonna like freeze over. <laughs> Which would not, I'd rather eat a cow water. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Jason, we have, uh, looks like Carl found like 20 different links for you that we'll put in the show notes. But where's the best place for people to find you? So the best places to find me are on my website, which is jasonbach.net. Um, I'm also on Twitter, at jasonbach. And then if you want to look at all my GitHub stuff, um, it's github.com slash jasonbach. That's easy to remember. And Carl, where can people find you? You can find me at WPDevGuy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. Excellent. And you can find me at YTechie.com or you can find me on Twitter at Twitter.com slash YTechie. And Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've seen you a couple of times in person and it was great to uh, to have a conversation with you on such an interesting topic. So we appreciate it. Well, thank you. Be sure to subscribe by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. Leave us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast aggregator of choice. Visit us at msdevshow.com where you can leave comments, check out our links, show notes, and more. Visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash msdevshow. You can send us your comments and feedback directly to feedback at msdevshow.com. 